I sent out source sheets in your class yesterday, and I'm going to post them in, ch in chat again. And all right, we are also live on Facebook. Welcome everyone to What Does the Torah Say About Modern Economics with Rabbi Jonathan Zeri. Uh, we have had the pleasure of learning with him for the past four sessions. This is the fifth of six sessions. Um, and if you're joining us on Facebook, welcome. Please, the sources will be posted in chat shortly and we'll be happy to answer any questions you get in chat. Um, that also goes if you're joining us on Zoom. Um, I'll be sending out a round of panelist invitations. They're a great way to show to ask questions easier, to not have to ask for permission. Um, it'll give you the option of turning on your camera. We strongly recommend taking it. Chats in both Zoom and Facebook will be monitored for questions throughout class. So if that's the best way to ask for you, don't worry, your question won't get shared. And with that, it's a pleasure to, that was a pleasure to learn with Rabbi Zerin. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, good to see everyone. Um, okay, so yeah, last week we uh, we dealt with the issue of of pricing. Um, the local question we dealt with was um, with the understanding that halacha on the, the Torah forbids um, overcharging um, with all the details that we saw um, were less than a sixth. Um, maybe it's forbidden, maybe it's permitted, but at any rate, it doesn't affect the validity of the sale. More than a sixth, it's forbidden, and it undermines the sale entirely at exactly one sixth. Um, the sale stands, but the the overcharged or the overcharged amount or the underpaid amount um, has to be refunded or paid, as the case may be. Um, and the Torah clearly assumes the existence of prices. So the local question we wanted to deal with was, um, does that make any sense nowadays? Is there such a thing as prices in a world where um, people don't necessarily buy locally. Um, they can just as easily order on Amazon um, or AliExpress as they can go to the store store near them, where it's so common for there to be different differentiated pricing, uh, depending on whether you're buying a bottle of, of soda at the store, um, in the fridge, not in the fridge, in the supermarket, in the makolet, in at a bowl game, uh, whatever the case may be, all the different reasons why pricing is, is difficult. And we saw basically three positions, um, two which assumed there is pricing nowadays, um, and either um, it's clear what the price is and everyone's violating it, which was the position of Rebuzner. Um, There is a price, but it's not clear how to figure it out, which was Zom Goldberg, or Vasher Weiss who said, look, there simply aren't prices. Um, and then we noted that sort of narrow question of how to apply the laws of Ona'a, of overcharging, um, really point to a much bigger question, which is, do we have to believe that every law that the Torah has uh, is something that must practically be relevant uh, at all times? Meaning, if the Torah assumes you can't overcharge and overcharging assumes the existence of pricing, um, then there must be such a thing as a price at all times in all places. Or do we say that it's legitimate to say that at least some laws in the Torah are um, responsive to a particular reality, um, but the Torah doesn't dictate that reality needs uh, to exist. Um, we're going to see not exactly that same phenomenon play out uh, this week, um, but we're going to see 
that um, another broad, broad methodological question of whether our tendency should be to read halachic issues narrowly um, or expansively. Um, and the upshot of it is going to be very similar to last week, where if our tendency is to read halachic issues expansively, then um, they will be relevant in many more circumstances and therefore more likely to be relevant in the circumstances that we face. Whereas if we think it's legitimate to read halach halachic issues narrowly, um, at least uh, without you know, any loopholes or anything, um, simply by reading the issue narrowly, we may practically make it mostly uh, irrelevant or at least re relevant in very limited circumstances. Um, and we're going to apply this to the very, very critical um, issue of competition. Um, because if there's any issue that really defines the difference between different visions of the economy, um, it is to what extent we um, encourage competition um, and at the extremes, um, unfettered competition, laissez-faire capitalism, as you will, and in the extreme, um, and to what extent do we believe that there are other values um, guiding the system? Um, we care not just about um, consumers, but we care about the well-being, let's say, of producers, um, and therefore we would endorse um, a more controlled economy um, where maybe prices won't be as cheap as they can be, where maybe there isn't as much freedom to the producers, there isn't as, um, maybe not as much freedom to the consumers either. Um, but um, society is trying to uh, take care through laws, things like, I don't know, tariffs and the like, um, to protect um, the producers, the people who are selling, the people who are making money. Um, right, those questions are very, very heated and really point to different visions of, of the ideal economy. Um, and I want to do is briefly, um, because it's a huge topic, but briefly analyze the halachic issue of competition and the limits therein um, and see, again, whether we want to read it narrowly, um, which would um, open the door for the modern economy looking very different than the one that halacha proposes, or our tendency is to read it expansively, in which case the restrictions that we find in halacha will be directly relevant to our uh, situation. So that is the, the large and small question that we want to ask. And with that, I will pull up uh, the source sheets. Um, okay, so what evidence do we have that um, halacha doesn't just say, well, competition is good, completely unrestricted? Because that halacha definitely does not say there are some protections uh, built into the system that produce rather that protect rather um, sellers um, and you you know you can think about it um, as we'll see this will be very relevant um, protecting let's say um, small stores um, from competition where even the slightest bits of competition might put them out of business think mom and pop shops and things like that um, what evidence do we have that halacha does uh, limit competition to protect um, producers, produce to protect sellers, um, even though it may be at the expense of, of consumers and doesn't simply endorse um, a completely free market. So um, the issue colloquially is often known as the laws of Hasagat Gvul. Um, now, what is Hasagat Gvul? So in the Torah, number one, 
the formal prohibition of, of hasagat gvul, which literally means to in, infringe on someone's uh, boundary or border, um, literally refers to a case in which two people live next door to each other in Israel, um, and they have a uh, property marker that divides their properties. And in the middle of the night, Ruvain wakes up and says, I can steal a meter of land from Shimon. I just have to take the, uh, these property markers and move them a meter over. No one will be the wiser. That is a biblical co- prohibition called Hasagat Gvul, which we see in one. Lotasig Gvul Reacha, Asher Gavlu Rishonim Benachlatcha, Asher Tinchal Baretz, Asher Adonai Lecha, Noten Lecha Lirishta. Don't move your neighbor's border marker, which the original ones have set, meaning the original people who inherited the land, in your inheritance, which you shall inherit in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. Um, now, Asagat Gvul is a very limited principle. And nevertheless, colloquially, it has come to be um, identified with the prohibition against um, certain competitive practices. And you see that, for example, in number two, where the Marshal Rosham Luria quotes from the Rokeach, or Lezer of Worms, um, a Balatosvot slash German pietist, who writes, Katava Rokeach, call a Kapeach Mechiato Shel Chavero, who Bichlal Arur, anyone who sabotages his fellow's livelihood is within the, um, the curse of Arur Masig Vulre'ehu. Cursed is one who uh, infringes on his. Uh, who moves his fellow's border? understand. Why would you say that competing against your friend, threatening his livelihood, is asagat gvul? Asagat gvul refers only to stealing land by moving border markers in Israel, and that's it. Um, he says that's true. Nevertheless, he must have had a tradition from his teachers. It must be that the prohibition of overstepping your bound, overstepping the border, overstepping your bounds, um, also includes overstepping one's bounds in business. Um, now that's a linguistic point because usually when people talk about limitations on competition, um, you know, I remember there was a dispute in when I was in YU, right? That there's like a makolet thing. Um, across the street from uh, from YU that's been there for years. Um, you know, classic little whatever, kosher kosher store with higher prices, but, you know, all the basics that you need if you need last-minute things, you need last-minute kosher products. Um, and then, like, three stores down, um, there opened another little one, which I think was actually called the Makulet or something. Um, and there was an uproar and and... Um, one of the the hashkacha they tried to get wouldn't give it to them because there's a problem of a good vul because they're now there are two stores in the same block even though there are two pizza places next door to each other by YU but no one cares because they both provide they get enough customers so it doesn't matter um, and the prohibition they'll throw around is a good vul now in classic halachic literature um, it's probably not actually called that um, the real prohibition we're talking about as you see in number three is lo the Gemara in two places derives from the verse, um, he did not do evil for its friend, to his friend, that it means that he did not enter, or he did not descend into his friend's livelihood. And the real name for this prohibition is probably that, 
Yored Lumanot Chavero, that you are not allowed to descend into your friend's livelihood. So before we even get into the details, um, you look at this and it's clear that there is some limitation on competition, right? There is some idea that I am not allowed to open a business under certain circumstances if it is going to damage my friend's livelihood. Now that already tells me that it's clear that halacha does not endorse a fully unfettered um, economic system full until the end, 100% laissez-faire, um, where we literally don't care, right? Um, but what are its parameters, right? Meaning it's very nice to say that there are some limits. Most people agree that there might be circumstances that there should be limits on competition, um, but the devil is in the details. <laughs> when, where, how much uh, limitations. So that comes down basically to one main um, sugya, which is found in Baba Batra on 21b to 22a. Um, I gave it to you, it's in, to, gave it to you here in its entirety. Um, let's read it. Let's read it inside and let's see what we get. So Amar Avuna, Hai bar mivoa duuki rechaya, va'ata bar mivoa chavrei gabe. There was a certain resident of an alleyway, right? So in the time of the Talmud, the standard way of people living, as we see very much in Eruvin, is that they would be houses which would open up into courtyards, and courtyards would in turn open up into alleyways, and alleyways would in turn open up into public thoroughfares, right? So your house um, was um, three steps removed from the public thoroughfare, I mean, you lived in different circles, right? In your own chatzer, um, in your own courtyard. So it's you and a few families, let's say four. Um, and then um, there would be like a little neighborhood. Um, and that would be your mavoy, your alleyway, right? Where let's say there would be several um, courtyards, each with a few houses. So let's say, I don't know, uh, let's say three on each side. Um, each with four houses, right? So you'd have six courtyards with four houses each. So you have a little community of 24 uh, families. And then that would open into the public thoroughfare, which in turn would have many uh, alleyways opening into that. That alleyway, that middle that middle space um, is called a mavui, right? And that's what we're talking about uh, here. Um, if if you For those of you who ever have been to, uh, to the Jewish community uh, in Toronto, um, specifically Thornhill, which is not technically Toronto, it's technically Vaughan, but okay. Um, you will, you'll see not exactly, but like 90% what this looks like. Um, it's a planned community um, where these streets are basically uh, built like this, where you have these um, cul-de-sacs that open into uh, sort of larger cul-de-sacs, which in turn open into main streets. Um, so basically the only people who are ever driving on your block are the people who live on that block because there is no cross traffic. Um, you can't enter from the main streets. You have to go all the way around. Um, and it's, it's basically meant to create these sub-communities with controlled uh, traffic. Um, so that's what's going on here. So if someone in these alleyways sets up a mill um, to make his livelihood grinding grain, um, and then somebody else comes and sets up a mill in the same place, in the same alleyway, in the same like middle what we've established as a 24 family community. Dina who He can be stopped. 
because he says you are killing my livelihood. Okay? So we clearly see that there is a circumstance in which it is legitimate for one person to say to someone else, you are not allowed to open a business because your competition is going to kill my business. But there's a lot of open questions. Right? There are a lot of open questions here because we don't know, right? The case presented here is very specific, is if you are in an alleyway, which is a very small little community, right? someone else can't open that business in your mavu, in your alleyway. But at this point in the Gemara, we don't know whether can he open it in the next alleyway over, which could be a two-minute walk, right? Um, we don't know yet whether the person who um, is opening it is an outsider or an insider, right? Is he also one of the 24 families that lives in this alleyway, right? Or is he someone who is from another alleyway or maybe another city and is commuting, to your alleyway. We don't know yet. We just know that there is a case in which he's allowed to do this. And we're going to see later on, Russia Weiss is going to say that there's something else that we don't know, that this uh, this entire Gemara is silent about that's going to be very important, but I'm not going to tell you what that is quite yet. So the Gemara says, Lema this could be supported from the following law, that that if you have a fisherman who has a, a trap, a net spread out, so another fisherman has to distance his trap, the distance of that a fish can travel so that the fish that were going to be caught by the first person's net won't be caught by the second person's net. The comma, how far is that? It's a, it's a parsa, which is whatever, an, a, a measure of distance. So doesn't that show that you're not allowed to open up a business, essentially, that will drive someone else out of business, right? I can't open my fishing net which is going to take your fish away. The Gemara says, no, that's not a proof. Shiny dugim diahave siara. Right? Um, that's different because it's not just that I'm competing with you. I'm actually destroying your business because fish, once they see the trap, I don't know if this is true, <laughs> they will not continue. Right? So it's not like I'm minimizing. Right? So the Gemara says, first of all, what, what we learned so far from this is that, yes, there's a limit in competition, but there's a difference between minimizing how much money you're going to make and destroying your business. Right? And the Talmud assumes that um, the fish case is more like destroying your competition or like stealing, right? We're not, we'll see, right? Because once I set up my trap, my second trap, I will prevent the fish from coming to the first trap at all, right? So either the problem here is that I'm destroying their business or simply that the fish that somehow, quote unquote, belong to you, right? Because you claim this territory, I am now taking from you. So that is problematic. But that doesn't prove that when two pizza places open in the same, um, in the same um, alleyway, that where I'm only minimizing how much money you make. I'm not taking it away, right? Because maybe people will come to me um, because, right? So like in YU, there were two pizza places next to each other, but one of them was cheaper and one of them was known to be better. Um, 
Also, there are a decent number of people around YU who are very specific to only have a flower, which is uh, which is yashan, right? Which is uh, right, which is definitely yashan, which is definitely winter wheat, uh, not winter wheat, which is spring, which is yeah, which is wheat wheat that was grown um, from before Pesach um, or took root before Pesach before the Omer, um, and one of them was uh, had this stringency, and one of them did not, right? So there were certain differences which meant that they both got business. We don't yet know what the law would be. So Gemara says, okay. So Amar le Ravina le Rava. Lema Ravuna da Amar Kreb Yehuda. Maybe Rava, sorry, Ravuna, who barred the two businesses from opening in the same alleyway, is supported from Rabbi Yehuda's position. Because the Mishnah says, Rabbi Yehuda Omer, lo yechalek chenvani, klayot ve'egozin latino goat. Rabbi Yehuda says that you're not a, store owner is not allowed to give out candy, essentially, to kids. Why? Because if you give out candy to the kids, well, their parents are going to follow. And then you're going to take business away from the stores that are not giving out candy to kids. Um, and apparently this wasn't creepy then. Okay. The Chachamim say, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. So you see there, Yehuda limits advertising or freebies right? Because it'll hurt other people's business. And the Chachamim don't. So do these line up. The Gemara says, no, 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 no. Afilutein or Rabbanan. The Rabbanan say, no, no, no. There's a difference between opening up two pizza places and the way you advertise. He says, listen, he said, listen, advertising, freebies. So you gave away, I will use modern examples, right? You gave away Candy, I'm going to give away cake, right? Or you gave away, right? Ice cream, and I'm going to give away popsicles, right? You want to advertise? That's not called unfair competition. You want to be stingy? You don't want to give out freebies, right? Well, then people are going to go to Costco where they do give out freebies because they like getting freebies, right? Deal with it. Um, that's not unfair competition. You, right? The person who isn't currently giving out freebies and giving out coupons and whatever, well, then get better at advertising. But but maybe the rabbis will agree that if I actually open a second business that competes with you, maybe that is unfair competition that is going to be forbidden. Because because he's allowed to say, you are destroying my business. So the Gemara says, We have a different source that says, no, I'm allowed to open a store next to my friend's store, or a bathhouse next to my friend's bathhouse. And I can't protest. Because I could just say to him, You do you, you do you in your house, and I'm in mine, right? I'll sell pizza here, you sell pizza there. Nothing you can do about it. So Gemara says, you're right, Tanaihi. The question of whether I can stop someone from opening a business next to mine is a Tanaitic dispute. Zitania, because the Brighta tells you, Kofin b'nei mivaot zeh et zeh, shalo leshiv b'nein lo chayat v'lo borsiki v'lo The people who live in this alleyway are allowed to prevent people from bringing in tailors or tanners or teachers, right, of, of young children. Um, um, 
But the Talmud then brings a dispute between um, Rav Shimon ben Gamliel and the anonymous voice in the Brita. And the anonymous voice in the Brita says, listen, this law only applies to outsiders. I can stop an outsider from coming into my business, into my area and opening up a business. But an insider, right? One of the other 24 families that live in this little alleyway, I can't stop him. Shimon Gamliel says I can stop him. So now here, you see two different models, right? Shimon Ben Gamliel seems to actually believe that there is a fundamental limit on competition, right? Because even though I have equal rights to my friend, we both live in this alleyway. This is both our turf. Both of us have equal rights to open a pizza place. I'm allowed to stop him once I have a pizza place because I'm allowed to protect my business and he can't threaten my business. But the Tanakama, the anonymous voice here says, not so fast. This isn't purely about competition because listen, if my next door neighbor opens a pizza place in my alleyway, that threatens my business. And nevertheless, I can't stop him. I can only stop an outsider. So according to the Tanakama, the issue here is less that I automatically have rights to protect my business from competition and more about turf, right? The idea that, listen, when I moved in this into this community, so I have enhanced rights within this community than an outsider. So if an outsider wants to come in, that's not fair. Not It's not so much the competition as much as, look, right? We live in a gated community, right? Part of living in this gated community is that we paid for certain rights, right? We have prior, certain priorities over outsiders, right? And one of them is that I can open my pizza place and an outsider, I can stop them. But that's not quite competition as much as, you know, real estate rights or, you know, uh, the expectations of a community, right? It's, it's not exactly purely limits and competition. It is, but because of the responsibilities of community members to those who already live um, in the community. And now the Talmud expands this. And Omar Avuna, brother of Yeshua, Pshitali, Barmata or Barmata Acharite, Matzimakev says, listen, it is clear to me that someone from another city, I can stop. Unless, unless he pays local taxes, right? So this is a very interesting position. And he says, listen, the reason that it sounds like, the reason I can stop an outsider is because he has an unfair advantage over me, right? It's not because of the competition. It's that I'm allowed to protest people of an unfair advantage. Namely, I'm an insider. I pay taxes in this city. Taxes in this city are high. If an outsider comes and doesn't have to pay those taxes, right? So he lives in the next town over, which has much lower real estate taxes. So he takes it, right? My overhead is very high, right? Because I need to live here. I need to pay the real estate taxes. I need to make a lot. Of, I need to charge more to cover my costs. An outsider doesn't have to, right? Let's assume that there isn't tax on the business, right? Maybe it's not a pizza place. It's a lemonade stand outside and they don't charge, you know, space for, uh, for carts, whatever. Um, so that's simply unfair because I need to pay more to cover my cost of living here. But if the tax system is such that he pays a head tax, then anyone who opens a business here, whether he's an insider or outsider, pays taxes, 
So then we're on equal footing and I can't stop him. Right? So Rav Huna Brady Evjo is a much, um, I don't want to, I don't know whether to say limited or, or, or expanded. He has, he is, he limits the cases in which I can challenge someone. He said, listen, the only time you can challenge someone is where you have a built-in disadvantage because you happen to live here. So then you can stop someone from coming in who's going to be able to take advantage of the tax regulations in a way that you can't, because that's not fair, because then he can charge less through no, right? It's not your fault. It's because he's taking advantage. He lives outside and he commutes. But if he levels the flame, if the playing field is leveled, then you cannot stop him. And then he says, but But anyone who lives in my mavoy, in my alleyway, I'm not allowed to stop. And then the Gemara says, okay, fine. What about a middle case? What about um, someone who lives in my city but lives in the alleyway next door, right? Is he considered an insider or an outsider? Gemara says, teku, I don't know. Let the question stand. That's a very good question. Okay, that was a little bit complicated. So let me summarize what we have. This is the main topic, the main discussion in the Talmud about limits on competition. At first glance, it definitely says that there are cases in which it is legitimate for a store to say, I want protectionist policies in place that are going to stop someone from opening my now, opening a, a store that is going to threaten my business, pizza place, lemonade stand, Miller, in the case of the Gemara, whatever. But the Gemara then puts a lot of limitations on it, right? The Gemara says, well, it's not quite pure protectionism in the way you think about it, right? Because, first of all, it may only apply when the person coming in is an outsider and I'm an insider. Right? And that may be because this is not about competition and pr versus protectionism per se, but rather about the presumed rights of moving into a community, right? There's certain expectations about living in a community and that it's true that it allows me to limit competition, but it's possible that that is more of a derivative of the fact that I have rights because I live here and I pay taxes here and the like. So much so that Ravuna Bredevishua suggests that if the person has to pay the taxes also, right, there's such a thing as business tax, and therefore we're on an equal playing field. Well, that's enough to make him, right? That's enough to say that I can't stop him. Furthermore, there's a dispute about whether I have any rights to stop someone who also lives within my alleyway, because maybe if it's not purely about my rights to protect my business, but it's about my rights to express the, let's say, implied rights in my real, in my, you know, in my real estate rights, right? The implied rights in my real estate ownership. Then maybe someone who has equal rights, I can't stop. Whereas there is the position of Shimon Ben Gamliel says, no, no, no. This really is about protection, right? I really am allowed to stop competition because drawing me out of business, and therefore even someone who lives in the alleyway and has equal rights to open a pizza store, I'm still allowed to stop him. Um. And then the, the, right, the Gemara attempts to compare limits on competition to limits on advertising, right? And coupons or whatever you think the equivalent is, right? Of giving out freebies. And then the Gemara says, no, no, no. That is actually much more permissive, 
right? Because even if we're going to limit, um, even if we're going to limit the opening of competitive stores in a case when it's going to drive someone out of business, um, if someone's just bad at advertising, um, I can't stop someone else from being good at advertising. Um, I have to learn to be better at advertising, right? I have to be, I have to learn to be better at, you know, coupons. Um, that's what we know from the Gemara. However, there's a lot of things we don't know. So um, I'll open it for questions for a second. What things do we not know, right? We know a little bit. We've seen a little bit. Maybe there's some type of limits on competition and maybe it's about expressing real estate rights and maybe it, but what was never brought up even once in this discussion in the Gemara? There's a lot of things that were not even brought up. Yeah. Um, traveling businesses. Good, right? So the Gemara doesn't actually bring up here traveling businesses and the continuation actually does. Um, it actually does specifically in one circumstance um, and that is cosmetics. Um, cosmetic, um, if, you, if you look here, you just go down a little bit here. Um, one second, I'll go back. Um, here. Omar of Nachmar Yitzchel, Moder of Hunebrei that everybody agrees, um, even the ones who are stricter, that traveling salesman of cosmetics, you can't stop. It's a special decree from Ezra that um, traveling salesmen are allowed to travel. So Jewish women would always have access to cosmetics. This is a formal, yes, this is a formal decree by Ezra. This is not like a late decree from Ezra. Hasofer. Um, um, so this goes back to the time, according to Chazal, goes back to the time of Tanakh. Um, the traveling salesman for jewelry and cosmetics cannot be stopped. Um, but you're right. So at least in the part we saw, I didn't talk about it, but the Gemara at least opens the possibility that in one case, um, does this mean I have to support the local Avon lady? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Or you don't, right? Because you're allowed to have traveling ones. So you don't have to support the local one. Um, so uh, whatever, you can get, uh, yeah, the traveling ones are whatever whatever home businesses exist uh i don't know what, what exists, there are there uh, are many there are many whatever um, i know in, i know in toronto rodent in fields was very popular or whatever things like that i don't know right i don't know what the modern equivalent is something like that um, um i just want to point out what that, else like, uh that if you're it's if you haven't if you're in the attendee thing and you have a question please use the raise your hand oh. feature we do want to hear from you um so let me throw out some things that are not clear um one thing that's completely unclear in the Talmud is what do we mean by someone else is going to affect my business? Does it mean they're going to drive me out of business or they're going to limit my profit? And is there a difference? That's a, that's a small issue, bigger issue. If I living in the 21st century and I take a class in economics, basic introduction to as I did when I was in YU, right? To uh, politics, what do we call it? Politics and, uh, I don't know, the, the, the morality of politics and economic systems or something like that, like an introduction to modern economic thought. Um, and you open up, I don't know, Smith. And you open up basic thinkers. You will see that one of the things that Smith will try to defend, one of the reasons that they endorse um, one of them, among others, that they endorse competition and free-er competition is because 
it's better for consumers. It's better for society. It drives prices down, right? And, you know, modern defenses of capitalism will say, well, since the industrial revolution, right, 200 years ago, the average person didn't have, you know, lived on the equivalent of what it is, like $3 a day or something, and they didn't have food on their shelves. And now, because of competition, look what happened, right? Now, you know, I, I'm learning uh, Rambam with my with my son, um, and we we were learning through the the laws of Mizonot, right? What does a when a when a person gets married, what how much sustenance is he committing to to support his wife, his children? Um, and you know, we were like laughing at it, right? The Rambam says, like, yeah, it's like a loaf of right, it's like two small loaves of bread per day, right? That's the only food because that's what you live on, right? And he said, but if you're rich, right, then it should be based on your wealth. And I said, you know, and I said to my son, I said, you know how crazy it is that like a few hundred years ago, the average person, the expectation was, you know, maybe you scrape by on bread. If you were rich, you had something else. Nowadays, right, like, you know, you go into the supermarket and, you know, people who are not rich, by, right, by modern standards, who are even lower middle class, right, but they're making ends meet, right, the amount of food they can get for a few dollars, right, the, the idea that anyone who's not completely impoverished is living on two rolls of bread a day, right, is crazy, right, um, but there's so much emphasis in, in modern, you know, in the, the literature that supports mo the industrial revolution and, and the, the free markets that emerged afterwards. So much of it is about the consumer, the fact that things have gotten better, that, that food is cheaper, that things are better quality, that we have better lives, we have cheaper clothes, we have, I don't know, easily accessed indoor plumbing, right? Things like that, right? The Gemara doesn't even bring up the consumer. Does the consumer matter here? Right, like is the only people that matter in the economy the different stores? Yes, yes. Noah says that gluten-free bread might only be half a loaf per day. Yes, that's true. That's true. Unless you buy it at Osharad, and then it's cheap. So whatever. Um, um, so what about the consumer? Do we care about the consumer? Does he matter in this? Right? Do we not even recognize? Um, so those discussions we'll see in just a second were discussed by the classic halachic authorities, right? So if you look, number five, the Ramah, Ramosh Israelis, the most important Ashkenazi um, halachic authority, writes, First of all, he says, listen, there are extreme cases. If you are going to destroy someone, there's certain harm to your neighbor, then everyone is strict, right? The leniencies of people from other regions, that's only where I'm like minimizing profit. But if I know that I'm definitely really harming you, so then everyone is going to be a little bit stricter. Okay, that pushes to a little bit more of a restrictionist model, a protectionist model. The Pitchei Tshuva um, says similarly, When the second one is not just coming to limit your profit, but to destroy your business, then everyone agrees that you can um, prevent, right? So you see that at least in the cases where you're going to drive someone out of business, um, the, the post-gim are stricter. Okay. What about the, but 
All of this is assuming that the only people we care about are the store owners. What about the argument that we care about consumers, <laughs> that we care about competition because competition imp improves quality, it lowers prices? Do we care? The answer is probably. <laughs> the Ramah writes, Yesh Omrim, Avalim Noten Leoter Bezal. This entire discussion is when the two store owners are offering the same thing for the same price. But if the second one comes in and says, I can offer it for less, or I can offer you better quality, and then the consumers benefit, you can't stop them. No, that's it. Now, in one line, the Ramah tells you, right, that a simple read of this Gemara would give you a warped view of the halacha. Because the second the Ramah says this, you realize that what the Gemara is saying is, look, we care, we have a certain amount of protectionism in limited circumstances, if and only if, it makes no difference to the consumer. It doesn't improve the lives of society, of the people in society, because the two store owners are going to sell the same products at the same price of the same quality. Then and only then, do we care about protecting the store owner? But if the second store owner comes in and says, but I can help society because I can lower prices and I can raise the quality, we say, okay, well then I guess our opposition is done, right? Do whatever you want, right? Now, a single, a simple line like that totally shakes up the entire discussion. Because now it says, well, Yes, halacha believes in a certain amount of protecting store owners, but that's only if like it doesn't affect society and it doesn't affect consumers and it doesn't affect, if it does, well, then we're quite happy to have competition. Or as the Gemara says later on, the Gemara recognizing the benefit, at least in certain circumstances of competition, specifically in the context of Torah teachers, the Gemara says, I'm a Rava, number eight, these teachers of children, if they teach, and there are people who teach better, um, so he says, we don't remove them because it, it'll, you know, it'll make people lose morale and they won't teach well. But Ravdimi says, no, no, no. And this is how we rule halacha. Uh, 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 uh. There are two teachers and a new person comes in and he's better, hire the new guy. Because the fact that people know that their lives are, that their livelihood is in danger if they don't, right? If they aren't good at their job, they'll learn to be better. Because the jealousy of scholars increases wisdom, right? So the Gemara recognizes the power of competition to improve the lives of the people, of the consumers, of the people in society. And according to the Ramah, um, that's enough, right, to override our concerns about protecting the stores. Now, I don't want to get into this too much. I will also point out that another huge limitation is that the entire discussion around protectionism here is built around an assumption of turf, right, that I have rights to this area and you don't, or less rights. Um, as we saw last week, 
with prices in an international um, economy, it's very unclear that you could ever implement these laws because, well, what would it mean, right? Most people are A, commuting to their job, right? We don't live in the same um, setup as they did in the time of the Gemara, right? Where there's like these sub-communities that are very well-defined. Um, the Gemara says that part of the rights come from the fact that locals have to pay taxes and people from the outside might not, but that's not true because they're in most places, there's pretty consistent um, taxes on businesses, right? And therefore that doesn't exist. And furthermore, as we talked about last week, um, the existence of e-commerce, right? Of Amazon completely breaks um, our understanding of what it would mean. Like, okay, so Amazon can't open a store next to me, but they can sell the same thing to my door at a cheaper price and faster, right? Because I may live next door to a clothing shop, but if I order it from Amazon, they'll be here in three hours and they'll bring it to my door, right? They're, somehow they will do that, right? So the when our sugya is built on turf, it's very unclear that in a modern economy, this matters. Ravasher Weiss, as he did last week, goes farther. And Russia Wise says, yeah, that's all very nice. <laughs> that's all very nice. But you're missing the biggest issue in this topic. And that is that in the modern economy, most people are not driven out of business because someone is doing the same thing that they are in their proximity people are driven out of business because someone comes up with a new technology, right? Or a completely new way of distributing the, pro the products that is fundamentally more attractive, right? It's not that I open up a pizza shop next to yours and maybe I have slightly different prices and maybe I have slightly different quality, right? That's what the halacha, the classic halacha literature is talking about. But in the modern economy, what people are worried about is if I invent a good enough AI, what percentage of jobs will cease to exist? Right? Not because they are competing, but because this job ceased to exist, right? People are worried about things like when they invented cars, what did all the people who, ro who rode horses, right? And were carriage, right? Horse and buggy drivers, what did they do? When we invented the computer, what happened to, right? What happened to, you know, uh, stenographers and uh, and you know, um, you know, secretaries who were hired because they could type uh, two hundred words a minute without mistakes on the typewriter, right? The bigger biggest disruptions in our economy um, has nothing to do with someone opening up a pizza shop next to mine. It has to do with creating new technologies that are disruptive. And Rav Weiss says, as he did last week, you've got to learn a lot more from the silence on halacha than what it says, right? So last week he'd said, well, halacha never says there have to be prices. It just says if there are prices, you gotta, you've, you've got to not overcharge. Well, now he says, halacha, when it talks about limits on competition, talks about limits on competition where competition means doing the same thing you're doing in the same place for the same price. And that's why the Ramah can come in and say, 
well, maybe if it's a different price or a better quality, so he can do whatever he wants, which means that the original case in which the Gemara limited competition was a case where he wasn't even changing the price. He wasn't even changing this quality, right? All he was doing was doing the same thing you were next door. So Ravasha Weiss says, listen, I understand. You want to put limits on competition? You want to have some protectionism? Fine. We will possibly, and this is questionable, as we saw in the Talmud, right? It's a dispute, but possibly. If somebody from another city comes in next door to you and opens up a pizza place that sells pizza at the same price that you do, at the same quality, maybe in that circumstance, you can stop him. And the Ramah already said, but not if he makes better pizza or sells it for less, right? Meaning this law is quite limited. But now he says, you want to know what Halakha says about the modern economy? Well, you don't understand the modern economy if you think this discussion is relevant to 90% of the cases that you're facing. And this is what he says. Anything which is the way of business and natural development of the economy, you cannot stop them. And I can give you so many examples in real life. There's translation below, but I'm going to read it from the Hebrew, but I put a translation underneath for people who want to just, you know, if you have this source sheets out, I have my translation here, but I'm going to, you know, extemp it as we go through because I like reading the Hebrew. Um, that is a word in Hebrew, supermarketing. Okay. Um, if someone would ask me, am I allowed to open wholesalers or supermarkets? Do you think that because mom and pop shops go out of business, I can't open a supermarket? But supermarkets weren't a thing 100 years ago, right? You had to go to the little tiny stores. And if you wanted eggs, you went to the, right? You went to the, to the, the person who owned chickens. And if you wanted chicken, so you went probably to the same person and killed the chicken. And maybe you brought your shochet with you. And if you needed milk, you went to the dairy farmer. And if you needed vegetables, you went to the farmer. And if you needed fruit, you went to a different farmer, right? And then at some point, someone came up with the idea of supermarkets, which then could provide everything in one place, which is a huge advantage and provided at lower prices, which is a huge advantage, right? This is like a fundamental shift. Are you going to tell me that I would have told people, nope, the idea of supermarkets, bad idea. It's going to drive small people out of business. Would you have told people to not invent cars? Because what's going to happen to the people driving the horse and buggies? And we shouldn't invent computers because all the stenographers and all the typewriter, the people who can type on typewriters, they're all going to be out of a job. That's true of every new invention. Should we forbid the development of tech of society because maybe by allowing the new to replace the old so people will lose jobs? He says, the silence in the sugya, the silence in the Talmud about new technologies tells you that whatever protectionism it is in halacha is, in his words, it's accidental. 
right? When it's like happenstance, right? I happen to open another pizza store with the same price and the same quality next door. Fine. In that case, you can stop the person from opening it. But not fundamental changes to the very fabric of the economy, and manufacturing. The Afshar owed. It could be that it's only forbidden to compete with my friend when I'm doing what he's doing. But when I invent something new, and what I invented is just so qualitatively better than what you're doing, so you go to business, and anything like that, and it's your cloud. There is no prohibition. Like, don't you don't have to like find a leniency? No, that is just not what Halacha is talking about. But Odin, you're at furthermore, the guy by Masha Kotwa, Ronama, Nal, the English shoot the Kapeh, Parnasar, Adam, Af, and Yesh, Pekah, Rafal, Kuchol, Turkhanim. The Rama thought that if you have lower prices and better quality, so you're allowed to compete. Not everyone agreed with him. He says, sure, but low confidence, Shavin, not every case is equivalent. You can't, you can't treat everything in the same way. He said, look, I get it. Maybe some of the and maybe some of the, the authorities thought that, okay, I charge a few less cents. So no, 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 that's not enough. He says, but come on. If you come up with a better way to produce it and make lower prices and still make money, like not like a few dollars here, a few dollars there, like you fundamentally come up with a better type of manufacturing or a better way of distribution. So you can actually charge less money, right? Legitimately and still make profit. So everybody wins. You're going to tell me that the mom and pop shop can put the yoke, can weigh down the yoke on the entire community and oppress the, the whole society in the claim that you're hurting my livelihood. What are you talking about? People have the right to compete. He said, you know when it's forbidden? If a company, which will remain nameless, can operate at a loss for 10 years because they're so big that they're going to drive everyone out of business, not because they actually have a better way of selling things, but because they know they can absorb the laws, drive everyone out of the business. And then in 10 years from now, they'll drive the prices up because they're the, they're the only, they're the only company left. He said, that is forbidden, right? That you can't do because you're not, actually changing the economy, you're artificially driving people out of business because you can handle selling at a loss. He said, fine, that the Torah would forbid it. But Softavar, all these issues, you have to really understand them. Really and weigh every aspect of it um, carefully. <clears throat> and like last week, and this I've just I I, I this is a tendency in Rabasha Weiss. Russia wise, I think, um, forces us to do two things, which like last week, there's the local issue that he says, and then the bigger and then the broader issue. The local issue that he he touches on is to what extent does Halacha really believe in protectionism versus, you know, right, in protecting the business owners 
small business owners, whatever at the expense potentially of society, of consumers, um, where if you wanted to, you could read the sugya, you could read the halacha in an expansive way and say, look, the Talmud says that if you're going to destroy someone else's business, then maybe everybody agrees that you're not allowed to do it. Right? And there's two opinions in the Talmud, but at least one of them says that I can stop even my neighbor, which means that even if we have equal rights to be here, I have the right to stop you from competing with me. And if someone wanted to look for a source in the Talmud and say, the, Torah, the Talmud doesn't believe in a free market. It believes in protecting small businesses and things like that, even at the cost of what it might do to consumers. You could definitely see evidence for it in the Talmud. Ravasha Weiss looks at it and says, listen, well, you know, before we get to Russia Weiss, on the other hand, you could take the Ramah and say, look, locally, I could push back and say, yes, the Torah has certain protectionist tendencies, but that's only when you're selling it at the same price and the same quality because the Torah balances it, right? It recognizes that we care about business owners, but it recognizes that we care about consumers. And at the end of the day, according to the Ramah, consumers went out. Locally, Rav Asher Weiss says that's the wrong way of thinking about this, right? The way to read the sugya is to read it not through what it explicitly says, but what it doesn't touch. And he says that the most deafening message of the sugya is the one it never says, is that every single discussion of competition in, in, in this Gemara is about where I'm doing the same thing you're doing. And my advantage is that I'm in the same place as you are. That's the advantage. But it doesn't talk about what happens in the modern economy, where usually what put what what causes people to right, go out of business is the invention of new technologies and better distribution. Um, and there he says that the silence in the sugya tells you that no one ever imagined that that would be forbidden, right? That fundamental changes that help society and help consumers and make things cheaper and make us have more food and better food and eat more right easier access so locally he says that to think that halacha would forbid that is to read the surah the 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 the, the, the talmudic passage too expansively and to realize that by definition it's narrow so his local issue is to make quite a strong claim in favor of much more on the free market side than the protectionist side. That's his local issue. But what I think is amazing, like last week, is the assumption that allows him to do that, right? The assumption that allows him to do it is, do I think, right? What is my, what is my um, bias when I go into a halachic question? Is my bias to read a halachic issue expansively so that, it specifically does speak to as many circumstances as possible, right? Or am I willing to read it um, in a limited fashion, which the, you know, what's amazing to be a Rabbi Weiss isn't just the fact that, you know, he reads the sugya creatively in such a way that it ends up basically as a, you know, a pin to free market, right? That's, that, that's also very impressive. It's that he has no qualms about looking at a halachic, a halachic issue and saying, why would you assume that you should read it expansively? 
in a way that would say that we have explicit halachic language for every circumstance. Maybe you just have to be honest that sometimes the halacha is limited such that it just doesn't apply in most circumstances, right? So just like last week, he was comfortable saying the modern economy basically doesn't have prices. He's comfortable saying that in the modern economy, the types of competition we're talking about are just not covered by the Gemara, right? And again, I chose this, this sugya for two reasons. One, because obviously the question of competition and whether we endorse competition because it improves society and makes things better for consumers and makes things cheaper and better quality, or we are more protectionist because we want to protect the, the, right, the people who are working and, and the like, which is obviously people are fighting about all the times in terms of moms and pop shops versus big stores like Walmart or Amazon, right? These are questions people struggle with. So obviously it's a very important question to ask. That's one reason we had to discuss this topic. But the second question is just like last week, we saw a fundamental question about what is our intuition when we approach halachic issues, which is, do we expect them to be expansive such that there must be an explicit answer in the halachic issue to our modern circumstance? And even if it doesn't speak to it directly, I should try to read it expansively. Is that our intuition? Or is our intuition that, no, oh, halacha spoke in its time to its circumstances. And if we were to face those circumstances, then obviously halacha would tell us what to do. But we're not scared to say that the reality that we face is so different that maybe halacha is somewhat silent, right? And that's a much more radical methodological question. But like I said, I think it's critical, especially in economic issues where, as we talked about with pricing last week and now with competition this week, the reality on the ground is so different that you really have to, you know, you, you have to have an intuition about which way you think halacha should be read expansively or in a limited fashion, and whether you're comfortable saying that halacha doesn't necessarily explicitly address the mo most modern situations. Is that something you're comfortable with? But that's a very important question, especially in economic issues, because our economy is so fundamentally different than the way um, it was when most of the classic halacha literature uh, was written. So I went two minutes over time, but I'll stop there. But again, that's why I think this issue, both the local one, but also the, the meta questions that it raises are just so important um, when we think about not what we think about the economy, but how we think about the economy and how we think what halacha should or could say about the very different reality that we face. Um, and that's something I just think we need to keep in mind. Um, I will stop there because I'm over time, but I will stay for questions as usual. Um, and unless there is opposition, I think next week, um, we'll go back to the pricing issue, but specifically the question of price uh, manipulation, which is, um, right, is it, what does Allah have to say about um, actually trying to affect the market so that prices go up um, and not just, right, how does it react to prices that already exist? Okay, um, I see something in the chat. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Okay. Um, and just to remind you, if you're if you're in the attendee slot, just use the raise your hand function, and I can unmute you. Um, I actually have a question. In your kind yes. of model, in your model of saying that the thing that drives people out of business is new technology, where do you put things like big box stores like Walmart? Because I feel like that's an so, interesting. Right. So, Rivasha Wise. Um, so, if, if we just go back, I'll pull it up again. Um, Rivasha Wise carefully uh, actually includes both. Right. He says both new. Um, 
right? He includes both new technology and new distribution models, right? That was his first one, right? Okay, right? Opening wholesalers or supermarkets, right? Now, okay, I understand so that, right? So Rav Weiss, at least, again, yeah. I'm not weighing in halakhically, but Rav Weiss thinks that um, it's not just new technology, new ways of distribution um, are also fundamental changes, right? Now, again, you know, you could look at Rav Weiss the first half of this chuva would tell you, oh, we love Amazon, right? Amazon has changed it. I no longer have to leave my, my house and I can get things for cheap, um, right? The first half of the chuva could lead you to believe, oh, we love Amazon. Um, the second half of his chuva, though, not necessarily, right? Because at the end he says, but that's only if you are, um, if you are selling things cheaper, because you actually have a better model, not because you can absorb loss, right? And drive other people out of, right? Now, Amazon has this interesting thing where on the one hand, um, it definitely has fundamentally changed the way we shop in many ways for the better. Um, but one of the things that Amazon does that it's often critiqued for is that um, it sells things at a loss because it can. And it's hoping that by the end, there will be no competition. And once it's driven away the competition, who knows what prices uh, it will charge. Um, so the amazing thing is you can look at a Russia Weiss here and on the one hand, see something that endorses Amazon's model simply because it changed uh, the way we distribute and the way we shop. Um, while on the other hand, um, it, right, he, he understands that, um, right, there are, there is a difference between, you know, people who manage to sell at scale um, and therefore charge less because they're selling to a lot of people, which is, let's say, the Walmart model, um, and selling at a loss to drive people out of business simply so that you can raise prices later, right? Those aren't the same. One is a real change um, in, in distribution, in the improvement of distribution and storage and things like that. And one is artificial. Um, and he, he thinks, he thinks at least, that only real changes, not artificial ones, um, are legitimate. Um, um, I have a question here from Ben. Microphone not working. Ask the notion you said that Allah was speaking to a certain time and situation. Uh, now, so we evaluate, is that not the approach reform you rate most of your deaths? So, right, so this is the interesting question, right? Is that, um, right, the, there's no doubt that in a position like Russia Weiss, and now simply by juxtaposing these two classes, you've, you know, we've seen that Russia Weiss does it twice. Um, the idea that saying, look, Halacha talks to certain circumstances um, and not necessarily others, and therefore practically some the laws are um, less relevant, right? Because they just don't speak to the reality. It's a very dangerous move, right? Because yes, in theory, if you expand it, you could do it to everything, right? Um, and I don't know if I have a good, right? Meaning, maybe I have a good answer, but it's not a short answer, right? Um, the answer is that A, um, monetary law is a bit more flexible, Right, that's the first thing to note. Right, that monetary law is more flexible in halacha in general. Um, right, so to take an example, um, in 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 monetary law, there is an assumption that um, most of the Torah's laws, not all of them, but most of them, are defaults and not actually rules. Right, so for example, the laws of uh, of guardianship. Right, if I agree to watch someone's object for free, so I have minimal responsibilities. Right, I am only liable if I am negligent. But if it's stolen or it gets lost, if I'm not being paid to watch your object, so then, right, 
you you have no claim against me. However, Halacha recognizes that if I want to, I can say to you, listen, I'm willing to watch your laptop for free, but I'm going to take full responsibility. Whatever happens, if it gets stolen, I'll pay you for it. Now, I don't have to, but I'm allowed to, right? So it's already the case that in monetary law, um, much of monetary law already in the Torah is default. Now, it's not true of everything, right? We talked about interest a few weeks ago. In interest law, it's not true, right? You're not allowed to. You have no choice. Neither the lender or the borrower is allowed to say that we're going to lend with interest. You, you can't make an agreement like that. There are things that do not budge, but certain things do. Um, or another example, right? Um, for the most part, let's say in America, most um, landlord renter disputes will be judged by American law. And the reason is basically because Ramosha Feinstein says that um, in the end of the day, what what drives the responsibility of the landlord and the uh, right, a landlord and a renter have every right to set whatever agreement they want between them. And if they're living in America and there's laws in the books, the implied agreement from a halachic perspective is whatever American law is, right? Meaning all the laws in halacha about renters and landlords are basically irrelevant because since we live in since well I don't but since you live in America, um, the assumption that when you rented a property was that it was going to be guided by the laws of the state. And therefore, that's the implied agreement. And therefore, halacha internally recognizes it, not because of dina de malchuta dina, not just because the law of the land is the law, but because it's the implied agreement between us. So, so monetary law is much more flexible, right? So to, to take this type of methodology outside the realm of monetary law, where there is an implied flexibility, um, is going to be much harder. Right, so that's the first part of my answer, and the second part of the answer is um, sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. Right, meaning um, just because sometimes the reality has changed fundamentally and therefore the halacha has changed doesn't mean the halacha has always changed and the reality has actually changed. Right, meaning there are cases where you look at it and it's much more obvious. Um, and there are cases where you look at it and it's much more speculative. Um, and just because in theory, there can be cases where reality has changed so much that Allah is not speaking to it, doesn't mean that every circumstance is like that just because you want it to be. Um, and each, even within the flexibility that's inherent in, in, uh, in monetary law, um, you need to judge each case rigorously. And just because, yes, in a particular circumstance, I say that this law was limited in its original application and the reality is so different, so it's going to be applied differently, doesn't mean that every law is like that, you know, because every law is different and every reality is different. Um, so, yes, it's potentially dangerous, but A, in monetary law, it's less dangerous because the flexibility is sort of built in. And two, yes, it's dangerous, and that's why you have to be rigorous. Uh, in your application, um, because it's not going to apply everywhere. Um, and right again, this is the short answer. The long answer, well, <laughs> the long answer could take forever, right? The long answer of, you know, when does halacha change and when does it not? Because, yes, you know, obviously, even within Orthodox, you know, halachic authorities, there are disputes about this, even in the context of ritual law like Yeridea, right? So you'll have post like uh, Rav Malamud who will say, yes, right? Um, 
the laws of, of pots and pans were written in a world before stainless steel, right? Where taste might actually have been absorbed into the pots. And now we have stainless steel and therefore many of those halachot don't apply, right? Yes, people will do that and other people will disagree. So I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I, the point is that each issue has to be analyzed independently and you can't just give a blanket answer for all things. Um, but again, monetary law is going to be easier. Um, and since that's the topic of the whole series, um, um, you know, you're more likely to see it in economic issues than you are in, you know, in ritual law, even though you might see it in ritual law too. Um, All right. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to cut, cut off, but as but it's there's another class almost, in like 10 minutes, right? Like, yeah. Um, but thank you everyone for joining. Thank you for staying for questions. It's a, and it's a pleasure. We have one more class in the series meeting next week. And I just also want to highlight one upcoming program. Drisha will be having a virtual winter's mon the last week of December. If you want to find out more about, about our winter's mon offerings, you can sign up at our you can sign up at our website at drisha.org slash classes. And if you have questions, you can always about winter's mon or about any of our class offerings, you can always um reach us by email thank you everyone and have a good day thank you have a good day right